Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. In 2015, the United Nations released their Sustainable Development Goals, 17 goals to help create a more sustainable and equitable world. These 17 goals included procurement systems, how governments can purchase and obtain resources in a more sustainable and ethical manner. But how does this actually work? How can governments include sustainability in their procurement systems? And can sustainable public procurement help mitigate the climate crisis? I'm Robin Allison Davis, and you're listening to OECD Podcasts. This podcast is the second in a series with MAPS, Methodology for Assessing Procurement Systems. To help answer our questions on the link between sustainability and procurement and why it matters, I'm speaking today with Stephen Schooner, Professor of Government Procurement Law at George Washington University. Thanks for speaking with us, Stephen. It's great to be with you today. In our first podcast in this series, we lightly touched on procurement and sustainability, mostly surrounding the UN Sustainable Development Goals. But can you give us an overall definition, just so we're all clear? What is sustainable procurement? That's a great question, and we could spend all day talking about it. But let me say that if we were to do a global survey, I think on the one end of the spectrum, as you mentioned, people describe sustainable procurement in terms of how governments integrate the UN Sustainable Development Goals into their purchasing practices. And what that really means is that not just buying stuff, they're thinking about all of the things that government should care about, basically public welfare, in making their purchasing decisions. Conversely, in some countries, for example, like the United States, where more social policies have long been integrated into public procurement, it tends to be a little bit more focused on how the government can use its enormous purchasing power to both adapt to and attempt to mitigate climate change. Well, thank you for that definition. Now we're all on the same page. But just one quick question. Is sustainable procurement and green procurement, is that the same just by a different name? Well, for the countries that are thinking about sustainable procurement primarily in terms of climate change, you often see a tremendous amount of overlap. I think where you see a little bit more divergence is for the countries that more aggressively embrace the holistic approach of the UN SDGs, which often focus on things like, for example, gender equality, poverty, quality of life, and the like, which are not so much limited to just the climate or the green criteria. MAPS has a module on sustainable public procurement designed to assess the quality and performance of sustainable public procurement systems, considering environmental, social, and economic dimensions. Why is this important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons, particularly given how far we've come with MAPS and how comfortable countries increasingly have gotten with using the rubric. Anytime you have an organized, systematic approach to thinking about a country's approach to their existing legal and policy framework, their institutional framework and their management capacities, the way they operate and how their markets work, and holding people accountable and being transparent, those are all really important considerations in a procurement system. So it's tremendously important to the extent that for many countries, MAPS is considered a common, respectable, quality assessment of their procurement systems. To see sustainable procurement integrated into that is incredibly important. As wonderful as the tool is, what's the question that it can answer, and what's the question that it can't? So there are many, many great things about MAPS, as you indicated. The one thing that MAPS struggles with a little bit is 
outcomes. So in other words, it tends to be a little bit more process-focused rather than outcome-focused. Now, let's be clear. Public procurement systems are built on process. But what we often talk about when we talk about performance measurement or metrics or assessment, or in other words, is the government actually using its procurement power to change behavior? Is it reducing emissions? Is it enhancing the quality of life of the public? That's much more difficult to measure, and that's part of an increasingly robust global debate. So what you're saying right now is that there is no way to measure these outcomes. This is something that everyone is working on. I wouldn't say there's no way to measure it. And in fact, the current global best practice in sustainable procurement is thinking more in terms of life cycle cost analysis or life cycle thinking rather than, for example, low prices, transparency, levels of competition or the like. But I'm sure we'll come back to some of those topics. Yes, we definitely will. Countries like Norway have applied the MAPS Sustainable Public Procurement Module and designed strategies to implement sustainable procurement. Can you tell us a little bit about what countries are doing to design and implement sustainable procurement? So it's great to talk about the Norway example because, frankly, it's one of the earliest efforts to use the MAPS to look at some of these issues. And of course, Norway is making far more progress than some countries. But what I would say, and particularly for those of you who are not familiar with it, if you haven't seen the UNEP, the United Nations Environmental Program, the Global Survey of Sustainable Procurement Practices from 2022, what you see is there's a tremendous amount of diversity around the world, and people are taking different approaches. The one thing that I do want to say that the Norway example maybe doesn't quite open the door wide enough for and we'll talk more about this later as well, is that it's one thing to change the procurement practices, but the biggest differences are going to come in the countries that fundamentally think differently about what they buy rather than how they buy. And just a quick example on that, I often point people towards some of the tremendous progress that's been made in the last few decades in Holland with regard to cycling infrastructure which basically gets automobiles off the street. And if you're unfamiliar with it, I really encourage people to take a look. Um, just use whatever your favorite search engine is, but take a look at the Utrecht Bicycle Garage, the largest bicycle parking structure in the world, which is integrated into the municipal rail system. And basically, it has fundamentally changed the way the entire city moves, operates, and works and it's done so in an incredibly climate-friendly way. So I think that one of the hardest things for countries to think about is changing what they buy, not just how they buy. So that brings me to my follow-up versus the what they buy and how they buy. So what is actually working for countries and what isn't? So I think the single most important thing, if you want to look at countries or individual states where things are working, it's leadership talks about it and leadership means what they say. In other words, at the highest levels of government, they've made clear to the public procurement professionals that they want to see different outcomes, and they're willing to get behind it in terms of supporting change behavior and sometimes making the additional short and long-term investments of money to make this a reality. So leadership is absolutely the most important. Uh, the things that aren't working are where countries simply 
pick up a survey, they say, oh, in this country they've done this, they add a law, they add a regulation, but they don't implement it. And if we've learned anything in public procurement in the last 30 years around the world, it's that it's very easy to pass legislation and regulation, but implementing it, or in other words, changing behavior is incredibly difficult. And it's incredibly important in this context in terms of sustainable public procurement because the learning curve is so steep. So what we really need countries to be doing is getting a strong message from the top, investing in training, assembling sophisticated teams, supporting the acquisition professionals, and then, of course, focusing on performance measurement or metrics. So when you bring up investment, things like money, that's often a hot button topic for something like this. Critics sometimes argue that governments end up spending more money if they include sustainability criteria when they're procuring. What do you think about this criticism? Well, first, it's common, and second, it's fundamentally wrongheaded, and to some extent, it is the very bane of the existence of the global public procurement official. We often talk in terms of the tyranny of low prices. Too many government officials, and I mean that in terms of legislatures, leaders, and frankly, this is true in terms of the media and audit officials as well, think that a good procurement is one with a low price. But as you know, and I'm talking to every individual listener out there, when you spend your own money, there is almost nothing you buy where the only thing you care about is the lowest price. You are constantly trying to assess whether you're getting value for money and whether you're happy with your purchase or what the private sector tends to call customer satisfaction. Now, I earlier mentioned the global best practice in sustainable public procurement is to stop thinking about low prices and instead rethink the value proposition in terms of life cycle thinking or life cycle cost analysis. And I'd love to talk more about that if we have more time. Yes, we definitely do. Okay, so let's think about it this way. Think about anything you purchase in an introductory economics class. We might say that the difference between life cycle cost analysis and focusing on purchase prices is that First, in life cycle cost analysis, your purchase price is included. So that does matter. But we also think about transaction costs. And there, that's what public procurement officials are and the oversight community as well, too. So that adds to the amount of money you spend doing the purchase or managing it. Then you have your operating and maintenance costs. For example, in an automobile, your petrol and your tires are classic operating costs. Your maintenance costs are how often you need to have upkeep or when it's being serviced, you need to replace it. And of course, you can analogize if you buy a more expensive automobile, your maintenance costs might be a little bit lower. If you buy an inexpensive automobile, you may have to do more work on it. There's a couple other aspects of life cycle cost analysis. One is time value of money because money spent today is different than money spent in the future. And then of course, The biggest one, or another big one, is disposition costs. If you buy a top-of-the-line expensive automobile today, but you only keep it for five years, you're going to resell that automobile and recoup some of your purchase price, which reduces your total cost of ownership or your overall life cycle spending on that item. The key point here is that the beauty of life cycle thinking with regard to sustainable procurement is it permits us to internalize 
the externalities which have typically been excluded in public procurement decision-making. Now, just real quick, and this is really important, but when we talk about externalities, every negative aspect of climate change that you can think of, fires, floods, storms, famine, drought, all of those things, those are the externalities that we haven't generally taken into account when we've made our purchasing. All of which brings us back to the thesis, when a senior government official says, we can't afford to pay that price premium for the more sustainable or less harmful solution, the correct answer today is we cannot afford not to because the government exists for the welfare of the public and what we really need to be focused on is a sustainable future for our children and their children. Exactly. It's all an investment. Everything has to be measured and taken into account. Absolutely. So let's talk about the climate crisis. MAP Secretariat published guidance on how to integrate climate change considerations into the assessments. How can procurement be used to mitigate the crisis? At the end of the day, I think that many governments underestimate the power of public procurement to help them achieve their climate-related aspirations. And that's true both with regard to adapting to climate change and mitigating climate change. As most listeners know, around the world, public procurement accounts for somewhere between 15 and 22, maybe even 25 percent of global GDP. But much more importantly, markets watch what the government buys. And sometimes government leadership can change broader behavior. It can make leading companies more comfortable with new practices. But the other thing that's really important to keep in mind is oftentimes the government can drive markets by buying emerging technologies where the market itself might not move quickly enough to give them the fundamental investments they need to grow and diversify. So basically, everything that the government does in terms of buying can really have an impact. Another thing to keep in mind is that people often underestimate how broadly the government impacts the full range of markets. Remember that governments buy goods or supplies, they buy services, they buy research and development, they also buy construction and public works. So the government has its hands in almost every conceivable market out there, and this is often true particularly with regard to innovative markets. So they really can have a big impact. Is sustainable public procurement something for all countries? Are there prerequisites to getting started? So the short answer is, yes, this is something that all countries should be doing. But at the same time, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. What we often talk about when we're talking to governments about this is that what we're dealing with is what we might call in the Navy or in uh, boating an all-hands-on-deck situation. In other words, every procurement matters. Every purchasing decision can move that needle just a little bit. Or, if you like walking analogies, the journey of a thousand miles or kilometers begins with a single step. But I'm often reminded that one of my favorite books on the climate crisis is written by Catherine Hayhoe, who's an academic who's now the chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy. And in her book, Saving Us, the basic thesis that she articulates is the single most important thing that any of us can do with regard to the climate crisis is talk about it. The reality is, is as individuals, as professionals, 
as leaders, as mentors, as teachers, as parents, as members of communities or organizations. If we all make clear to others how important this is and how we need to reprioritize and how we need to rethink what is important again for the future of our children and our children's children, we're really going to see some dramatic changes. But going back to where you started, there is no simple solution for any country to basically say, I'll just copy what the other country's doing. Countries buy different things. They operate in different markets. But we see a lot of tremendous diversity and some great successes around the world. We just need to speed it up a little bit. So are there any aspects of sustainable procurement that you think don't get enough attention? I think one of the most important and one of the least understood is food. And frankly, as we know, governments buy staggering amounts of food, not only to feed school children, but also to feed, for example, their military. There's also cafeterias and government workspaces and museums. But if you're going to read one thing on that, I strongly recommend George Monbiot's book called Regenesis. And one of the points that he makes is in our current world on the planet that we live in and our current agricultural practices, in the future, we simply cannot continue to grow food, to feed food. And therefore, one of the most important things that governments can be doing, and again, this needs to be incremental. We don't need to, to change everything overnight. But if governments could reduce the volume of beef and cattle products, that would make a tremendous amount of difference. Uh, people, I think, don't really appreciate that beef isn't just more harmful to the environment than other meat or food or vegetable-based products. It's 10 times worse. And so if we can start being a little bit more intentional about the foods that we buy and, more importantly, the supply chain that provides them. In other words, when you buy local food, your scope three emissions or your transportation costs go down dramatically. Uh, these are the kinds of changes that incrementally over time are really going to make a difference and in some ways are a little bit easier. So to wrap things up, what more do you think needs to be done to have more sustainable procurement worldwide? What's missing? So it seems to me, if we look at the success stories, it typically starts with leadership. We need strong leadership in government organizations that are willing to first talk the talk and also walk the walk. And what I mean is people look up and around for signals as to how to behave and to know what's important. Change management, changing behavior, changing culture, that's the hardest aspect about sustainable procurement. And when you have strong leadership, then what you can do is you can start driving procurement professionals and others up the learning curve. You can start assembling the teams of experts that need to support them, because let's be clear, your average public procurement official isn't going to be an expert on the greenhouse gas protocols or calculating or assessing or reporting or targeting emissions, but we need to assemble teams and have them understand that what they're doing is important and they're going to get support for the top, and that their governments are willing to invest in the future so that we can both adapt to the realities of climate change and attempt to mitigate it. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Stephen. It's been an enlightening conversation. Thanks so much for including me. To learn more about the MAPS Initiative, go to mapsinitiative.org. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud.com OECD.